This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. So this is the Gospel According to Musical Theater. My name is Nathan LaRude. I'm the Dean of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. And my friend Peter is with me on the call. Peter, would you introduce yourself? Hey, Nathan. My name is Peter Elliott. I'm, I, for 25 years, I was the Dean of Christ Church Cathedral in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. I've been retired just a little over a year and uh, been working with Nathan on this conversation, working with you. Uh, it's not yeah, really working. Playing. We've been having a conversation. <laughs> We've taught this course a couple times and it's great to have a few moments to see how we can do on a podcast. Yeah, we sometimes call this course Two Deans, Two Queens. And a piano when we've got a piano, although these days of social distancing and COVID pandemic, we don't usually have a piano with us anymore. We have to figure out other ways to make the music happen. Uh, but the conversation continues. Uh, and actually, Peter, the course is your inception or the idea of looking at musical theater from a theological slash biblical perspective. Uh, tell me kind of where that came from for you, why, why that was something that you came up with and how I got involved. Yeah, so there's a conference center in... British Columbia, uh, where you've been now, Nathan, called the Sorrento Center, where through my time when I was dean in, at the cathedral in Vancouver, I was invited to teach a number of times and taught a bunch of stuff. And they invited me to come in 2019 and said, what would you like to offer? And, oh, I guess it's kind of true confession time, but you're a priest, so that's okay. <laughs> um, I'd been listening somewhat incessantly to Sirius FM, the satellite radio station 72, all Broadway all the time. Uh -huh. It'd become a little bit of an obsession. And so I was listening to it and thinking about, well, what course, what should we do? And I thought, oh, well, why don't I do something on the gospel according to musical theater? Proposed that to my husband, Thomas, who said, oh, you got to be out of your mind. I said, no, I, I, I think it's a good thing. So so I pitched it to them, quite expecting them to come back and say, ah. <laughs> but they said, nobody has ever put that before uh, in front of us before. So away we went. And then you came to preach at Christchurch Cathedral, Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I remember I tell the story quite often. I picked you up at the airport. Thomas and I picked you up. We had lunch. I told you about this course. Then we went out for dinner. And after we ordered drinks, you said, so what shows are you thinking of doing? So I started, of course, with Oklahoma and Rodgers and Hammerstein. And as I tell the story, dessert came and we continued the conversation. We really haven't stopped since that night. Yeah, I think we had I, we had maybe gotten to like South Pacific or the King and I by the time <laughs> dessert came. And your long suffering and very adorable husband, Thomas, was so indulgent as he sat there letting us geek out on, on musicals. <laughs> and we've been geeking out ever since. So we've... Uh, We've done a couple kind of courses, classwork at Sorrento Center first, uh, some classwork at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral, where I live and work, and at Vancouver School of Theology this summer up uh, up in Vancouver, BC, where you are. Uh, we've kind of done a, a 101 version of the course, kind of looking at musicals a little more structurally, kind of the history of the, the Broadway uh, genre, the Broadway idiom, and we've looked in a more particular way, at questions of race and ethnicity as they play out in musicals. And the, and the way that we teach the course, we usually, we often really do focus on questions of, 
race and gender and sexuality as being uh, kind of particularly interesting to look at both theologically, but also kind of theatrically how that works. So that was a, the, the race course was kind of an easy jump on where we have tended to focus our conversation. Yeah. And we're, and we have a very broad understanding of gospel and maybe that's a really good place to uh, kick off this conversation with in this series of podcasts, we hope. And both you and I have a background in evangelical Christianity. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> and so my evangelical mind and spirit, when I hear the word gospel, conjures up a whole bunch of stuff that I think it's probably good to get out of the way because that's not what we're talking about. So I guess one of the things it conjures up for me is the gospel, although the word means good news, as I was presented it in early my early growing up and particularly sensitive being a gay man around all this uh, this stuff, was not particularly good news. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a message that you know, God is, uh, God is watching you better behave. (laughs) God is watching you better behave. And Jesus is kind of like, you know, Santa Claus. Uh, He knows when you are sleeping. (laughs) He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad and good. And in fact, he died on the cross because of because of your, your sins. sins yeah no, you killed them well yeah, yeah mine. You <laughs> mine, mine are probably much more egregious than yours so it's that's a fair that's a fair assessment i don't think anyway that we can talk about that offline but so that i mean the word gospel actually brought a lot of guilt in for me as a as a young person and simultaneously as a young person i was listening to musical theater and performing <laughs> some in musical theater and that sort of stuff so they're they were two very different worlds. Uh, but as my understanding of what gospel means has evolved over the years, uh, suddenly there's a, an alignment now that wasn't there before. Yeah. Would it, would it be fair to say that in some ways, musical theater, although you wouldn't have known this at the time, offered you, and I would say offered me too, a different understanding of gospel that was completely out of a church and theological context, but at a time in which both of us, as as queer men growing up uh, in the nor- in the kind of Western Hemisphere, we needed uh, a different way of experiencing good news. Maybe initially outside of a religious context, but gradually as we and both of our you know both of our work as Anglican priests, uh, you know, leading liturgies, developing uh, corporate experiences of worship, I expect we we both really draw on that kind of earlier secular understanding of gospel as we put together uh, corporate worship in some ways. This is kind of different understanding of what it means to be a fully embodied human being and what it feels like to gather with other fully embodied human beings and experience, you know, in, in a theatrical context, what we might call the energy of the theater. But both of us as, as committed Christians would say the, the Holy Spirit, the, the presence of God in our midst. Um, that's something that I've experienced in theater as much as I have in church. Um, although the the markers are different, and sometimes the my my understanding of what's happening is a little bit different depending on context. Absolutely, same here. I mean, I, I think for for me, musical theater, there's the original cast recording and mm-hmm. the experience of that, and we'll probably talk about our experience of original cast recordings as this uh, series goes on. But then the kind of ultimate experience of musical theater is in the theater, yeah, with. Uh, bringing together all of these forces of an uh, 
uh, actors who can sing, usually who can dance, an orchestra, sets which create a whole other world for you to enter into. And as you say, the energy that comes from a well-done performance of, a, of one of the classic musical theater pieces, I find irresistible. And yeah, very akin to a good Sunday morning liturgy. Yeah. And one of my theological, one of my theological friends uh, should, uh, uh, one of my friends who's, who taught theology at seminary, I should say, he just, his definition of liturgy, mm-hmm. which often gets defined kind of popularly as the work of the people, right. is a public work for the common good. Mm-hmm. So like building a road in ancient the Greco-Roman world was a liturgy. It right. was to enable things. And, and I think musical theater is, it's a wonderful definition for musical theater at its best. Right. A public work for the common good. For the common good. Yeah. And that's always, I mean, we, we like to think that's always what we hope we're doing in church, right? Giving people an experience that is not just about feeling warm fuzzies, but is going to I mean, you know, transform your life, maybe even in, in a small way that will then allow you to be a part of building this thing that we, you know, in, in classic Christian parlance, we call the kingdom of God. But that's that is for the public good, right? That what we do in church is meant for the benefit, not just of the people who are gathered, but for the benefit of the larger society, the city we're in, the world that we live in. Um, and at its best, I think what you're suggesting is music, musicals have a similar aim, right? They when they when they're really hitting the sweet spot, um, it is work. On, that actors and technicians and artists are doing for the common good with the idea that the audience will leave transformed, even if it's the, you know, the silliest, happiest, you know, I actually, one of my, one of my touchstone experiences, and this, I suppose, is kind of getting us a little bit into kind of how our backgrounds, theatrical and otherwise, um, I remember being a freshman in high school and I was cast as one of the suitors in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, a musical with very little theological, well, actually probably more theological content. I mean, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff about the Mormons in, uh, in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, but I remember standing in the wings watching the actress who was playing Millie, the, the kind of the lead woman, leading the, the brothers in, I think, one of the early, you know, early numbers when she's, I think, it was, I think it was going court and, you know, she's like dancing with all the brothers and teaching them how to, and they, they start, you know, and, and this was, okay, not only is it kind of a schlocky musical, but it was, you know, it was a high school production. It was not a particularly, uh, <laughs> let's say it was not a particularly great production of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And yet the energy that was being exuded by these eight actors, I, I mean, I was standing in the wings watching and I remember watching my friend Allison, who was pr- playing Millie and seeing her like almost what I want to say now is like transfigured, right? I mean, she was playing a role. So like there's that aspect of it, but she was exuding joy in a way that was obvious and connecting with the audience in a way that I watching for the wings could see, right? Like there was this kind of magnetic connection between her and that audience. And it was, uh, I remember being a little like almost kind of moved to tears. And I remember thinking like, that's like, that's what this thing can do. Now that is a silly moment in a silly show with a lot of problems we might say from a gender and uh well from all kinds of of perspectives but yet there's something so powerful about that connection that can happen between an actor and an audience that is not unlike i think the kind of experience that we uh we seek to offer when we gather in houses of worship on sunday mornings i love that yeah and i think those of us who've been in musical theater productions know 
at its best, the kind of bonding experience that the, that the cast has. Yeah. It really does create a community. I've been in other kinds of theater as well, and it happens, but there's something almost like a, a it's raised a level in musical theater, the, the deep sense of community that you feel. And I think part of that is because of, of singing together. Um, and, uh, you know, in these COVID times, uh, one of the great lacks in my life is the opportunity to sing with others. And that's been such a staple of my life for, for up until, you know, this past few months when we've been in isolation and so forth and uh, not had the opportunity to sing together or to hear people sing together. So I think there's something, and so that's another common link between the life of the church and the life of musical theater is, I mean, liturgy is musical theater. Right. Right. And, and theater and, and liturgy in the kind of, maybe not in the Christian sense, but I mean, you know, the scholars, historians of the theater will say uh, ritual worship and theater begin in the same place, right? What the, the, the kind of the Greek theater was as much an act of corporate worship as it was a story that was being told for an audience by actors, right? So, so what we do in church and what we do in a black box theater on a Saturday night have a, have a common ancestor in this, I mean, I almost want to say anthropological phenomenon of gathering bodies in a space and experiencing a story in some ways, vicariously through actors, right? And that and that's that sort of you know on behalf of the, that liturgical doing a work on behalf of the of the public good, right? In in theater, we actors tell us a story, but the audience becomes a part of that story, um, and that is an act of of certainly public ritual gathering in some ways. Uh, and some of the interesting shows that we've looked at, you know, really begin to break down the distinctions between a ritual and a performance in some really interesting ways. I think we're in a time right now in, 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 the, uh, in the Northwest where uh, some of the you know, theater is becoming a little more ritual. Ritual is becoming a little more theatrical. Um, so sometimes it's hard to say, you know, what, what, what's theater, what's, what's liturgy? Well, there, you know, there, there's a lot of gray area there. They're intertwined. And I think what you and I have been doing, we didn't set out consciously to, to do it this way, but we've been approaching the, the text, the book, yeah. the lyrics, as te- as we would approach biblical texts and liturgical texts, right. and that's to say that we have been looking at where do they come from, what period of time do they come from, what was the world, just like you look at a biblical text, uh, Gospel of Matthew, let's say, you say what was the world of of the, of, of Matthew's community, if you want to do that kind of analysis, mm-hmm. that put together the life and teaching death and resurrection of Jesus in a particular way. Similarly, we'll look at, for example, South Pacific and say, what was the world, and it's a very interesting world, South Pacific, because it was just post-Second World War, very fresh in the memory of the first audiences that saw this play, uh, was the memory of the of the theater in the Pacific, uh, the war in the Pacific theater, as, as it gets called. And then how do, how do these characters develop? Who speaks? Who's spoken to? Who doesn't speak? What are the assumptions about uh, romance, about being male and female, about being part of a community, about being part of the military? In other words, we have taken, I think, our training as exegetes is the theological term, term. the technical term, and brought that to the to the world of musical theater. Yeah. Yeah. And like I mean, like like many sort of liturgical texts. Right. I mean, one of the questions we always ask is, you know, you look at you look at a text, you look at a score. 
Um, but we're also always thinking about, you know, what is it, what, what's the difference between the printed, uh, you know, the printed media available to us or the recorded media available to us and then the embodied experience of being in a, in a theater together. You know, how, so, you know, we, we, we look at a show like Oklahoma, which has its premiere, you know, on Broadway in 1943 and tells a very particular story about America, you know, in the middle of the, of the Second World War. Then we look at a kind of contemporary revival of Oklahoma, right, that just hit Broadway, I think, last year. Doesn't change a word of the libretto, doesn't change a note on the page, re reorchestrates some of the music, and tells a very different story about violence and scapegoating and kind of a, the dark underbelly. We might talk about this a little bit uh, in our next episode when we actually launch into Oklahoma. Um, but looking at texts, certainly, but then also the ways in which texts of necessity are interpreted by an interpretive community. Um, and every time you gather a new group of actors, a new generation of audience members, you are in some ways reconstituting a new interpretive community. And the texts and the music and the dance moves are going to speak very differently, uh, depending on the, the context in which they're being embodied. And the social context changes so quickly. Yeah. One of the musicals we've talked about a lot, and I'm sure we'll talk about repeatedly, is Hamilton, yeah. which when it opened seemed groundbreaking, casting people of color in the in the roles of the founding fathers of the United States and very much a musical from the Obama era. But looked at from the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd and others, suddenly there were some very critical conversations happening online and in a variety of media about did Hamilton really break, break some ground or was it just putting people of color, BIPOC folk into what were uh, male roles. And so my point is just just like biblical texts are interpreted in the moment, mm -hmm. uh, uh, musical theater, uh, even something, even a, a short uh, history like Hamilton, 2000. 15, 14, okay. 15, something like that. Yeah. So in the, in the course of under five years, yeah. uh, we look at it differently. Yeah. Um, and I think every time you and I have come to any number of the classic shows or some of the some of the not great shows that we remember that no one else does, when we look at them again, we bring a whole different sensibility and perspective. Yeah. yeah. Which becomes its own kind of really interesting question, right? Can you can you love a show? that maybe was really important to you at a certain time in your life. I mean, like, I, I kind of, I have, I have a real soft spot in my heart for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I look at that show now and think, oh my God, like, this is so not the way that I want young <laughs> boys and girls growing up in America to think about gender roles and marriage and, I mean, society and white people and Indians. And I mean, like, it just raises all kinds of problems for me. And yet I still kind of love the show. I mean, not in a, like, you know, I'm willing to die in a ditch for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But how do you learn to love something and also at the same time be able to uh, critique it, to, uh, to pull it apart a little bit, uh, to understand it in some deeper ways. And then, can you, and then can you come back to a place where you can still, you know, go to the theater and see a production of a show that you say, yeah, this is a pretty problematic show. And yet I might still have a really enjoyable experience in the audience watching that show. I think that's a really interesting, because in some ways that's a question that as, uh, as Christians we bring to the Bible, right? How can I continue to love this text that has done so much violence and harm uh, to, to me and lots of other people uh, over the course of history? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you, in the, I suppose in, in the Paul Recur sense, you know, how do you go through the desert of criticism and are you able to come to a second naivete 
where you can where you can love something again, even though you've been willing to ask the hard questions and pull it apart. Yeah, one of my rabbi friends says that every reading of the text is an act of interpretation. Right. Uh, that it 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 means in the moment, even if you read the same biblical text an hour and then an hour later. Right. You you come at it with a different with a different set of questions, a different set of assumptions. And I think similarly with musical theater, every time you see it, it's it's another act of interpretation. Every every director brings a particular point of view to a, to a musical. Every actor inhabiting a role. I mean, you and I have both inhabited roles in musical theater. We bring what you know right. what we have into it, and so it's far from kind of a cookie cutter. Well, some of the Disney stuff gets a bit cookie cutter. Although even on, even but... the Disney stuff can be kind of a fascinating thing to kind of look at from a critical from a critical lens and looking at its context. And I mean, we we just we've discovered this in some of the classes we've taught that certainly for people in my generation, I'm 38, so you know, grew up on. Uh, on Disney, you know, sort of the the classic Disney musicals that were very much shaped by Broadway artists, right? So The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, uh, Alan Menken, and Howard Ashman, you know, really brought a Broadway sensibility to to Disney. So for for many folks that grew up kind of in that era, Disney is actually our doorway into the Broadway tradition in some ways. Um, and of course, now all of those all of those movies have been you know brought to the stage, kind of you know after the fact. So they are part of the Broadway canon now. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the ways in which the world of Disney and the world of Broadway have kind of found common cause, I think, is its own kind of very interesting story. So even even Disney is worth a, a critical look. Fair enough. Well, and the resilience and u- ubiquitousness of musical theater um, yeah. in cartoons, kids almost naturally gravitate toward doing if they're if they're at all into dress up and putting on plays, which lots of kids are. Uh, they kind of naturally put on, start to sing as characters. Yep. And then even, you know, shows like Saturday Night Live, whenever John Mulvaney's on, put together a big musical uh-huh. number as part of that. And that's that should be the definition of all that is hip and New York and contemporary <laughs> and in the moment. But gosh darn, they're doing musical theater. So yep. there it is. There it is. It's it's a part of our... and And I think that's in some ways what... Uh, certainly drew me when you first started telling me about this course that you were thinking about. I think it, it's such an interesting way to come at questions of deep meaning, ultimate meaning. We might say spiritual questions. I'm going to say religious questions, theological questions, however you want to frame that. Um, for people that are maybe a little averse or unfamiliar with some of the technical language of church and theology and scripture, musicals are part of our consciousness as uh, Western people. Uh, Canadians and U.S. You're Canadian. I'm I'm American. But musicals are have had such a profound impact. I think uh, on how we understand the world, a kind of uh, a common cultural vocabulary, if you like, that it becomes, I think, a really interesting place to ask theological questions because this the sacred text that we're working with is one that a lot more people are invested in and can share. Um, so it's one thing to do a Bible study on the Gospel of Matthew. We do that. It's fun. Uh, it's always worth talking about the Gospel of Matthew. But it's a different thing, in some ways a much more fun thing, to do a kind of a Bible study on Godspell or on, you know, Pippin or on Wicked or Hamilton. Because that those texts and that music and some of those cast recordings have had such a profound impact on so many of us that they've become a kind of secular scripture. And maybe this is a good time for a spoiler alert. I'm thinking back to the first time we offered this course at Sorrento, and we were looking at My Fair Lady, mm-hmm. which kind of gets ripped apart. That's the spoiler alert. 
And there was a woman in our group who we finished the whole thing and talked about the misogyny of Henry Higgins. <laughs> we sort of and, destroyed my fair lady. <laughs> and she was almost in tears saying, but I just love this show, you know? I just love know? this show, yeah. I just love this show. You guys have wrecked it for me. So it's not our intention to no. wreck things, but it is our intention, I think, to broaden the perspective and to ask some critical questions about what does this say about, for example, My Fair Lady, about yeah. uh, relationships between men and women, about class, mm -hmm. about gender, about language. I mean, it, it raises... and. What the heck is Henry Higgins doing living with Pickering for all those years? <laughs> if they're not a settled old gay couple, but uh, maybe that's too soon. Too soon? Maybe that's a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think it, that, that, that kind of hits at the, I think at the sweet spot of the work that I think we're trying to do here is to help, help. I mean, in some ways, it's a very personal project, right? Like, I, I do this for my own interest. I want to be able to pull apart shows that I love, not so that I destroy them for myself, but so that I can love them better. And more responsibly, Ooh, I, I think I think that's the you know if we're gonna speak in theological concepts, that's the the redemption I suppose on offer in a course like this is how can you take a, a show that you love, pull it apart a little bit, understand why it is the way it is, how it works. Uh, some of the work that we do in this course is structural work, right? How are musicals structured? There's a kind of uh, a time tested dramatic arc, although we might even talk about some of the theological underpinnings of that. I've been doing some interesting reading on the kind of Aristotelian dramatic structure and the way in which it can be mapped onto a male orgasm in ways that are very fascinating and also kind of sexist and problematic, right? Like, so that, that's, a, that's a topic for another time. Uh, the structure of a musical is a pretty time-tested, established structure. So understanding how musicals work, right? And when a successful musical moves us, there's some yeah, like there's some there's some tricks of the trade. There's some behind the scenes machinations that that make make certain things work and make other things not work. So understanding structurally, understanding culturally as you said, right? What's the what's the world of the artists that put this material together? What kind of a world was it brought into? Was it born into? What cultural questions is it responding to? What does it have to say in its original context? What does it say to us now? So we ask all those questions, we pull it apart. Sometimes we we ruin it or seem to ruin it for people. But the goal is always so that the stuff that we love, we can learn to love better and more responsibly and more, I don't know, more wholeheartedly in some ways. I think that's always where we where we hope we're going to find ourselves. Yeah, and I think it's it's very similar to me to my journey through seminary and biblical biblical studies. Uh, I thought I was relatively sophisticated going into seminary a long time ago now because I'd studied philosophy, I'd studied literature. And within the first couple New Testament courses, when you begin to hear scholars, New Testament scholars who have spent years studying and they kind of smash illusions about uh, spirituality and they root you much more in a Semitic world and raise questions about veracity of certain texts. And I think for every seminarian and for folks who, who take the Bible seriously, there comes a moment of, can I believe anything anymore? Right. And then you begin to put it back together yeah. so that, you know, I'm uh, just a shade older than you at 67 as we speak today. But <laughs> You begin to look at the world differently. You begin to think about theology differently. But still, for me, I look to Jesus and pray to Jesus. Yeah. 
I see the Christ figure emerging beautifully, the resurrected Christ, as it were, in, in musical theater over and over again through moments of, of transcendence. I see, I see communities formed and betrayals happen just like happen in the gospel. And I see interpreters within stories like Paul who take what was an experience and then talk about it, kind of the omniscient narrator or the great interpreter. I mean, I think that's what Hamilton does so well is it's you're getting the narrative, but you're also getting interpretation on top of the narrative, if if you can imagine that. So, so I mean, uh, uh, Christians, of course, see Christ everywhere because I think Christ is everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I think you and I have found the true and living God expressed in and through the canon of musical theater as we discuss it. And sometimes that's by pulling it apart. And sometimes it's by just, and I hope we get a chance to do that in some of the, this, in some of these podcasts, listen to a song that just soars Mm -hmm. and transcends and quite a, we can, I mean, we can pull apart My Fair Lady, but nothing's going to destroy I Could Have Danced All Night. (laughs) It just works. It just works. So can I ask you a theological question, Peter? Sure. Can musicals save us? I think only God can save us. <laughs> good good answer. Good, good orthodox but I think, answer. I think, I mean, I think God works through many ways. I mean, I think we see God in nature. We see God in each other. We see God in moments of intimacy and love. We see God at a dinner party. Um, Jesus particularly liked dinner parties, so that shouldn't come as any surprise. And yeah, I think God can come to us. Christ can come to us through musical theater. And that's not to try to make musical theater into some kind of pious thing. uh, It's because God is so enmeshed in the business of being alive. In fact, God is the essence of being alive, to quote a Stephen Sondheim song. And and as as Anglican Christians, Christians in the kind of Anglican tradition, with our tradition's particular emphasis on incarnation, right? Not not God is not just alive, kind of in the world in all the ways, but but particularly in an incarnate way. So musicals right. allow us to incarnate or embody uh, something. You know, you think about I could have danced all night, right? It works as a recording, but it but it works because that's. A, a, a woman's body vibrating in a particular kind of way, uh, what those vocal cords, I mean, I think about Julie Andrews, right? Like what that body is able to do, I want to suggest is, is a little image of divinity. So I don't know if she can save me, but she can, she can sur- sure be a, 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 a transmission of some kind of saving energy. And actually, you know, like I think about, I mean, this is getting a little, you know, but the role that somebody like Julie Andrews played for me as a little queer boy growing up in a you know, small town in Oregon, she kind of did save me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> not, not in the same way that I hope Jesus saves me. Uh, but no. but uh, yeah, I mean, you, you talked about this originally. Like in, For those of us who grew up with the, the term gospel as, as much a cudgel as a, an invitation— uh, we sometimes had to, and this is maybe the the kind of the queer the queering of theology, the the way that you know queer people, and I'm using that in the broadest sense, right? Not just those of us who are uh, you know people of sexual and gender diversity, but people who uh, have to look outside of the traditional boxes in order to find their way through to op- ultimate meaning. Sometimes we have to look for alternate gospels in people like Julie Andrews and Lerner and Lowe and Rogers and Hammerstein and Stephen Sondheim, um, and maybe they help to bring us back to. Uh, the you know the gospel of Christ, the gospel of 
the, the good gospel, news, the, the good news of the kingdom of God, which is, as Jesus said, in in your midst or among you or something or that's happening, you. yeah, within you, something that happens when you when you gather, when you are uh, embodied people with other embodied people. And, and the amazing is, thing about yeah. I could have danced, amongst the many amazing things about I could have danced all night, just while we're on it, is the big moment of the song the, is the same note repeated. Mm-hmm. I only know, like, that's just one note. Yep. But the, the combination of the lyrics, the the uh the moment in the in the show when that happens as you say uh her body vibrating with enthusiasm makes just repeating one note four times with four different words absolutely spine tingling it's a frisson whenever i hear that and i think it's just the same note repeated yep but there it is You look for those moments where the chill goes up your spine or that that's actually, you know, when, when people come to me in my office and say, you know, like I, I grew up in the church, blah, 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 but I, I don't really, you know, I don't really believe in God. I've never had an experience of, I, how do you, you know, like I pray, I, you know, I read scripture, I come to like, what, what am I missing? You know, I, I see these people around me and they seem to be having this experience of something. And I feel like I'm, and I, I, the question is always like, well, you know, where, where, where does the, where does your spine tingle, right? It doesn't have to be in church. Where do you have that experience where tears begin to well up in your eyes? Not because you're sad, Maybe you are, maybe it is, you know, but like there's that interesting kind of physiological response that our bodies make to stuff like those four notes that Julie Andrews sings. I think that's our best doorway into how do I experience God in the world? Because it's beauty. Yeah. And beauty is so undervalued, I think, in in this postmodern era. Um, beautiful things being a beautiful melody, uh, being drawn to to beauty because beauty is a is a, is part of the expression of the divine. Yeah, we've been because of pandemic times out for a walk every day, an hour, two hours on a, on a good day. And I've recently we're recording this in in November. We uh, the leaves, mm-hmm. the color of the leaves has just been amazing, and I. I said to my husband the other day, we were walking, is this year better than than any other? You know, he said, I think we're just noticing more. Yeah. We're noticing more. And my hope is that through our shared conversation about musicals, uh, musical theater and the gospel, that it will invite people to notice more. Yeah. To notice the beauty, to notice their own responses, to dig into the text, to pull it apart. But I don't think we want to leave it there. I think we're always going to put it back together so that those moments, the spine tingling moments, the tear welling up moments can 
can still and I hope happen mm-hmm. can still happen and I hope happen maybe even with a little more profundity a little yeah. more depth a little more ability to notice and not not just experience it but also know right like oh this is real what I'm experiencing is real and I know part of why it works and also knowing what happens behind the you know we know this as actors right knowing what happens behind the scenes doesn't rob you in fact in some ways I think it deepens your ability to really give yourself to those experiences. So that's that's the that's the hope anyway. Is that by pulling something apart, hope. we can love it. We can love it better. We can love it better. And we're dealing with story yeah. at the very basic part of a of any theatrical is narrative is story. Just as at, at a very basic part of the Christian way is a story. Yeah. Actually, is a complex bunch of stories intertwining, uh, interrelating. And as we sort of, I think, focus on what story is being told here and what does that tell us about what it is to be human and what does it tell us about being human at the time that it was written and what, given what our current experience is, what does that tell us about our life now? Um, Very deep. Those are the questions we're always asking, but especially, I think, in this in this time of pandemic, when we can't gather in the ways that we are accustomed to, either as artists and theatrical practitioners or as church people, we do have this really interesting ability to notice in a different kind of way. And I think there is a kind of there's a kind of grace in that. Uh, there's a grace in absence, if you like, and not in the the pain of not being able to uh, to gather in the ways that we, as as Thomas said, you know, we are noticing things in a different kind of way in some ways because we don't. We can't just experience everything we used to. Um, and I think that becomes actually a really beautiful time, a really interesting time to look at musicals uh, when we can't most of the time gather in a, in, a theater in a theater to experience them. We might learn why we love them so much in a whole, in a whole new way. So I hope you come aboard yeah. as these conversations continue. It's, it's just great fun to have this hour every week or however long this, this podcast is with Nathan. And- <laughs> I'll keep talking with you about musicals until they uh, <laughs> until they shut us off. <laughs> <laughs> so away we go. Yeah, Oklahoma next week. I think we're gonna look at Rodgers and Hammerstein a little bit, the kind of progenitors, if you like, of the uh, the sort of classic Broadway genre, and Oklahoma, the show that, at least according to the traditional Broadway historians, kind of changed Broadway forever. So we'll get to talk about what that uh, what that means and and pull apart a show that is easy to love and also hard to love. There's a lot of absence in Oklahoma, some very palpable absence in Oklahoma. Yeah. I had lunch the other, uh, the other just last week with friends and they asked me what I was doing. So I told them about this ongoing conversation that you and I are having and well, what shows are you looking at? So I said, well, we start with Oklahoma. So it turns out she played Ado Annie in high school oh, and awesome. without a moment's provocation began a whole speech dialogue that she has at a restaurant. So uh-huh. it's everywhere. It's a, it's a text that continues to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Okie doke. All right. I'll see you next week. See you next week. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.